Well, it is uh, fitting this morning that we come to the, the final week in our series, I'm Not Fine, uh, dealing with depression, anxiety, and the gospel on uh, the Sunday in the life of the church calendar that we celebrate um, Jesus, what we call triumphal entry. Uh, it was triumphal today because of next Sunday, entry into Jerusalem, understanding that we don't serve a Lord and we don't pray to a Lord and we don't have a Lord walking with us who doesn't understand the full range of human emotions. He faced them all. He faced them all. Um, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, we are going to be, we're going to start out in Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. I want to give you a minute to go ahead and find that. Uh, yesterday, I, I woke up and went outside. It was a very strange thing. There was a, a thin layer of yellowish, greenish stuff on, on my vehicle. I'd never seen that before. I got in and looked out the windshield and I thought, that's very strange. And I got out and I looked at it. It was like a, a mild, foul snow had happened overnight. So I don't know if that's just me or if you guys have experienced that. Maybe the, the, the lead into that was what had me sounding so rough last week with allergies. The lady that handles our social media and uh, some of our podcast things, she texted me last Monday and said, hey, are you sick? Because you sounded terrible yesterday. I said, no, I don't think so. I think it's just allergies, so it's better today. Um, part of the struggle that we encounter, I think in general when it comes to how we understand God and how we think about God, is, is this temptation to think, and this is heightened in seasons where depression and or anxiety have a hold of us. It's this temptation to think that when things are going good in my life, God is with me. I've found God's favor, and when things are going bad in my life, God is not with me. I've somehow fallen out of favor with God. Even when you know better theologically, there's that temptation. And part of what we're going to encounter as we look at the life of a man named Joseph, some of you will be very familiar with Joseph and his story. Some of you will be somewhat familiar with Joseph, and some of you have no idea who Joseph is. But part of what we're going to see is that Joseph's life, among the entire testimony of the Word of God, from Genesis to Revelation, destroys that kind of thinking. In fact, the, the entire book of Job is a testimony against that kind of theology, that when things are going good, God is with me, and when things are going bad, he must have left me. Joseph's life is significant. I don't know if you've ever thought about it or aware, but his life um, comprises chapters 37 through 50 of Genesis, an entire third of the first book in the Bible is concerned with and filled with the activities and events and circumstances of Joseph's life, much of which I'm going to summarize this morning for time. Um, Joseph was the youngest of 11 kids. Can you even imagine I've got five, and it's all I can stand. I love them, right? I always have to say that after I make a statement like that, but five's all we can handle. We still feel like only with five, we need a population sign in front of our house. But Joseph was the youngest of 11, and he was a favored, pampered, spoiled brat. Ever known one of those? Don't look around, just nod. 
This was Joseph. He was his father's favorite. And his father had given him this this special robe that signified his favoritism. And that favoritism, that open, blatant favoritism, does what open, blatant favoritism always does in the human heart. It created bitterness and anger in Joseph's brothers. Now, Joseph didn't mind this. He leaned into the favor, right? We all like favor as long as it's directed toward us. Um, But Joseph did not handle this well. Uh, One time when he's a, a late teen... He, he comes back in from the field, and, and he gives his father a bad report, kind of tattles on his brothers. Nobody likes a tattletale, right? And if you've got a lot of siblings, you, you have one who's prone to tattle all the time, and then you have one who's always just barely staying out of jail, and then they go uh, all in between there. But Joseph was the tattler. One morning he wakes up, and, and he tells his brothers, he said, I had a dream last night. It was magnificent. I dreamed we were all out in the field and we were gathering bundles of wheat, sheaves. And he said, all of your sheaves were tiny, pathetic little bundles, little, little loser bundles of wheat. My bundle, however, was magnificent. It was large and fantastic. It was a winner. And all of your little loser sheaves came and they bowed down to my big, grand bundle of wheat that I had gathered. And that signifies that one day all of you are going to bow down to me. Isn't that fantastic? And his brothers didn't receive that well. They didn't receive that well. Joseph went on into his parents and said, you know what? I had a dream. It even went further. One day both of you will bow down to me. Parents, how well received would that be from your children? Not very well received. So they're out in the field one day and one of his brothers says, you know what? I've had it with Joseph. Let's kill him. Right? I mean, there's 10 more of us, so we don't need the runt. And they decide to get rid of him. One brother steps in and says, let's not kill him. There's a a traveling caravan coming through of Egyptian slave traders. Let's just sell him. Let's sell him to the uh, Egyptian slave traders, and they'll carry him off. And they did that. They took his robe. They ripped it up. They covered it in places with animal blood, took it back to their father, said, hey, we don't know what happened to Joseph, but it looks like he was killed. The father mourned. Joseph is taken off into Egypt, sold into slavery. Let's pick up Joseph's story now, the beginning of Genesis chapter 39. We'll just look at the first four verses at this point. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph. We're going to see this language over and over. And it is meant to remind us that the covenant God, the God who makes promises and keeps promises with his people, was with Joseph, just as he was with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before. That this covenant God is the God of everlasting love. He doesn't run. He doesn't leave his people. The Lord was with Joseph, verse 2, so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. Now, this was going well for Joseph at this point. One Old Testament scholar said this about this interaction, about Potiphar's purchase of Joseph at the slave auction, and then Joseph finding favor with God, and then through his favor with God, favor 
with Potiphar. He said, in this single episode, we see vividly displayed the dominant theme of Joseph's life. That God was providentially preserving his life in spite of and through intense trial and injustice. That God was providentially preserving Joseph's life in and through intense trial and injustice. God was with Joseph. But Potiphar wasn't the only one that noticed Joseph, right? Potiphar's wife noticed Joseph. This rugged young Hebrew man who was so trustworthy and always around the house as Potiphar was out doing his business. And this evil temptress decided she was going to push herself and advance herself on Joseph. And Joseph continued to push her away. He walked in integrity both before God and before his master, the text tells us. One day she runs off, she rips her clothes, and she tells her husband Potiphar that Joseph tried to take advantage of her sexually. Potiphar hears this, and as you can imagine, he reacts. Let's look at verse 19 of chapter 39. When his master, that's Joseph's master, Potiphar, heard the story his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Can we agree that there's not much lower in society than a slave, except a slave in prison? A slave in prison gets one rung lower than just a slave, and he's in this place where the king's prisoners were confined. Egypt, as most of ancient history and many parts of the world today, was not a place where political dissent was tolerated. And so Potiphar sends Joseph to prison. Now, let's continue reading. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. So the Lord was with Joseph when he was sold into slavery and carted off to a foreign land. The Lord is with Joseph when he is unduly and untruly falsely accused of a crime and in prison. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Have any of you ever managed or supervised uh, an employee who was just this good, right? That once something was handed off to them, you never, ever had to worry about it. They took care of it. This is how Joseph was in the eyes of the warden while in prison. But think about Joseph, right? Because he was a human being just like we are. He'd been taken. He'd been betrayed by those he loved, even though he was a pampered little brat. Betrayed by them, sold off, taken into a foreign land, a foreign culture, far from home, no family around him. He'd chosen to, to, to um, press in and lean into God's favor in his life and his love and his goodness. And he, he finds himself excelling even as a slave. And then he's not betrayed this time by people that love him, but he's falsely accused of things he didn't do. Some of you have been there and that's a painful place to be. He's put in prison. Don't you think he, he's probably not glowing and, and singing songs of praise in prison in the beginning. He's probably wrestling and struggling with 
why all this is happening to him as he continues to try to walk faithfully with God. If God is with him and if God continues to show him favor, why do these things keep happening? Why is he struggling in all these circumstances like he's struggling? And yet God is still with him. In prison, Joseph runs into a couple of of Pharaoh's special advisors who had fallen out of favor with him and found themselves in the same prison where the enemies of Pharaoh went. Two of them had dreams. Uh, The dreams were unsettling to them. Uh, Even in our day, much less take uh, cultures of antiquity who really wrestled with dreams. But some of you have had really unsettling dreams. You know what it's like to wake up from a dream and it takes you a few minutes to find your bearing. They had dreams and one of them comes and, and asks Joseph if he can interpret it. And Joseph says, through God, of course I can. God is the one who gives this kind of knowledge and he interprets the dream and it's favorable. And then the second special advisor says, hey, he got a favorable interpretation. I'm coming to Joseph as well. And Joseph listened to his dream and he said, okay, and in three days... Pharaoh's going to cut off your head and impale your body on a stake. So it didn't go well for him. He didn't like the interpretation of his dream. But that's what happened. The other one is released. He goes back into service in Pharaoh's palace. Let's pick up the story in chapter 41. Because Pharaoh has a dream now. And it unsettles him. Look at chapter 41, verse 1. When two full years had passed, I do do want to just give a moment of pause here and remind you that we're moving through this pretty quickly, but years are passing here in Joseph's life. Years are passing, not days, not weeks, but years. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat. I don't know what a sleek and fat cow looks like, but that's what they were. And they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt. I do know what an ugly and gaunt cow looks like. Came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. Verse 8, in the morning, his mind was troubled. You think? Rough night, wasn't it? So he sent for all the magicians and wise men, all of his special advisors of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. All right, so he called in all of his his pagan advisors, and and no one could interpret his dreams. And then the one guy remembers, hey, there's a guy, Joe, Joe in prison. He interpreted my dream, and it came true. He also interpreted another inmate's dream, and it came true as well. Maybe you should send for Joseph. So Pharaoh sends for Joseph. And I I want you to pay attention to verse 16. It's just one verse. But it really gives us an insight into what God's doing in Joseph's life by this point. Pharaoh asked Joseph to interpret his dream. And this is what Joseph says in verse 16. I cannot do it. Joseph replied to Pharaoh, 
But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. This young, spoiled brat was growing eventually into a man whose character was being transformed. Remember, he had no problems when he was younger sharing his dreams. He liked to come in and share self-glorifying, self-centered dreams. But at this point, something has shifted in Joseph's life. And he says, I can't do this kind of thing. He knew he could do it. But he knew that he could only do it through the power of God. That it was a gift God had given him. And all of a sudden, Joseph had matured to the point where he was no longer about exalting himself. He was no longer about glorifying himself, but pointing toward God. Some of you in here probably saw the 2017 national championship game between Alabama and Clemson. I don't know how many of you remembered. If you're a if you're a hardcore Alabama or Clemson fan, you probably do. Um, I was not a hardcore fan of either, though. I was rooting for Clemson. Clemson won, but it was a remarkable game. It was a back and forth tight game. Just a, a phenomenal uh, night to be a football fan. Clemson pulled it out, and I was watching the interviews after it. They were interviewing players, and then they got to Dabo Sweeney, the head coach of of Clemson. Dabo was a mess. He was kind of teary eyed and, and excited. They asked him about it, and he said, man, he said, this is absolutely impossible. This is crazy. This is something that only God could do. Only God could take a poor, broken little kid from Alabama and do something like this. Not only was he from Alabama, but he was an Alabama alum. So he was a, a graduate of the University of Alabama, had played football for them. I don't know if you know Dabo's story, but he grew up in a broken home with an angry and violent alcoholic father. Mother finally left the father, and they spent a lot of years off and on homeless. Dabo and his mom and siblings, they would move from friend's couch to floors to sleeping in a van, wherever they could sleep. This continued to be kind of the pattern in the family, even after Dabo went to college. Had his own place to live. His mom came and lived with him. Dabo said at one point they were so poor, they had to share one bed. But Dabo gave all glory and all honor during that interview to God, to what Jesus Christ had done in his life. He'd experienced the same kind of transformation that we see in Joseph's life. Joseph was aware now that he can't do anything, but he allows God to do it. And he says, here's what your dream means, Pharaoh. We're going to have seven years of plenty in Egypt, followed by seven years of drought. And he tells him, he said, you need to find someone who's discerning and wise and capable so they can lead the nation of Israel to put back a portion of all that we collect and all that we harvest for the first seven years so that we can live okay throughout the last seven years. And Pharaoh says, that's a great idea. Why not you? Any of you ever learned a long time ago not to volunteer, not to share great ideas? Churches that are really healthy and well-run are led by people all throughout the life of the church who when someone brings a phenomenal new ministry idea to them, they say, that's awesome. You're probably the one to lead that. If you're the one God gave it to, you're the one to lead it. And this is what Pharaoh does. He says, I trust you to do this. Let's look at verse 39. Look at verse 39. Chapter 41. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning 
and wise as you. Notice, Joseph is not discerning and wise in and of himself, is he? He's discerning and wise because God has made it known to him. Verse 40, you shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. This is coming from Pharaoh, from the most powerful man in the most powerful nation in the world at this time. There was no other people, no other culture, no other nation on the face of the earth that could compete with Egypt economically, politically, or militarily at this time. And now Pharaoh is second in charge. He's prime minister of Egypt. Verse 41. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And people shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. But without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Not a bad ascent from such a low descent, was it? And I, I don't want you to miss part of verse 42 here, where we find that Pharaoh dresses him in robes of fine linen. What you see here is this redemption of one of the, the symbols of his brattiness and his spiritual immaturity and his father's favoritism that led to him being sold into slavery. That fine robe that his father had clothed him with in the beginning that had been ripped from him as a symbol of his death and his loss, his removal from the family. Verse 46, we won't read it, but tells us that Joseph was 30 years old at this time. 13 years had passed. 13 years is a long time to be snatched out of your home, your culture. Some of you have uh, spent some time in other countries, and you felt uh, the, the distinct difference of, of living day in and day out, understanding that you're not home. You're not among your people. You're not in a culture that you know instinctively. 13 years this has been Joseph's life. Well, as the story continues, verse 57 fills us in a little bit, and the verses around it tells us that this famine did come and it did spread. After seven years of plenty and seven years of good leadership at the hand of Joseph throughout the, the land of Egypt, drought came. Drought came and famine came. And all of a sudden this famine went throughout not just Egypt, but the known world, the civilized and populated world. And verse 57 tells us that the world began coming toward Egypt to get food. They began coming into Egypt, the only place to get grain and to provide for your family. And verse 57 is setting up for us a showdown between Joseph and his brothers. Can we just be honest for a minute? Any of you ever been deeply wronged by someone in here and struggled through a se season of nursing a vindictive and vengeful attitude toward that person? Wondering if you were ever going to, maybe if you weren't going to be allowed to make it right with them, you could at least watch it be made right with them. You could see their fall as they posted on Facebook or Instagram and just put the little praying hands or something while internally you're delighting. 
We wonder how Joseph is going to respond. His brothers come and there's a series of interactions. Joseph wants to know about his father. He sends them back. They come back. They don't recognize Joseph. He's been gone a long time. He's matured. Egyptian culture was distinctly different. He looked Egyptian in dress and manner at this time. A man in significant power. But he makes sure that his family is provided for and taken care of. In verse or chapter 45, I'm sorry, I turn over a couple of pages to chapter 45. Chapter 45, we'll pick up chapter 45 with verse 4. Joseph couldn't stand it any longer. He had to reconnect with his family. Verse 4, then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Now let's just pause there for a minute. Right? Uh, the prime minister of the most powerful country in the world, who has all of the forces of this country at his disposal, has just informed you that he's the one person that you've most deeply wronged in life and sold into slavery. Do you think possibly underneath their robes, their legs were a bit weak? Think maybe there was some, some additional sweating of the palms? An intense need to use the restroom? Look at verse 5. And now, Joseph says, do not be distressed. And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. As Joseph looks back at their, their human effort and their human decisions in what they perceive to be human agency, who does Joseph attribute the work to primarily, them or God? God. Because I will tell you, for all of the human freedom that God grants us, it does not rise above his sovereign will and power. It always exists underneath the umbrella of God's goodness and God's sovereignty. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Verse 6. For two years now there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And to save your lives by a great deliverance. The life that they cast aside, that they rejected that they sold into slavery is now the very life being used by God having been softened by God's love and goodness and grace to save their lives so then verse 8 it was not you who sent me here but God if you and I could ever understand the goodness and the power and the grasp of God in our lives, be it a high season or a low season, a season where everything's up and to the right or down and to the left. That kind of understanding of the character and nature and sovereignty of God truly becomes a warm blanket to our soul. It gives us the power through the Holy Spirit to walk through anything in a way that those without Christ simply do not have. Look at the rest of verse 8. He made me father 
to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Ruler of all Egypt. Joseph's father passes away after he'd mended things with his brother, mended things with his father, we find these words from Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, the last chapter of the book of Genesis. Verse 18. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Do, do you notice the fulfillment of a dream that Joseph had? See, God gave the calling and the dream to Joseph early. But Joseph didn't have the character to handle the weight of his calling. He had a gifting and an ability. But he needed to spend some time in character school. He needed to grow up and he needed to mature. But his brothers come and they bow down. They say, we are your slaves. Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. They understood that maybe, maybe he was holding off his anger and his vengeance on them until the father passed away. But now that the father was gone, they absolutely expected vengeance from Joseph. They thought he was playing a bit of a game before. But Joseph said, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph learned during these years, these painful years, these years of trial and struggle and injustice, he learned to acknowledge God, to glorify God. And he learned to trust in and rest in the faithfulness of God. And can I just tell you, church, it set his heart free. It set his heart free. Don't believe for a minute that Joseph didn't nurse thoughts of retribution for some time, as is so common for human beings. But in God's goodness, he led him through that to the other side. And I want to make just three real, real quick, brief observations that I think we can grab a hold of and hold tightly to about God and how he relates to us as he is revealing the meaning in the mess that we experience and particularly experience when we wrestle and battle with depression and anxiety. The first is this, that we see in Joseph's life. God is always working for your good. If you've been redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ by the grace of God, you've been grafted in to the family of God, you're a co-heir with all that God has given in and through Jesus Christ, God then is always working for your good. Through relational struggles, through financial struggles, through issues at work, through issues with your health, God is always working for your good. That is the assumption that the writer of Genesis years later looking back on and writing Joseph's story under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so wants us to know when he uses these phrases, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. He wasn't just with him. He was with him for his good. He continued to find favor with God and with others. 
Second observation, God is always working for his glory. God is always working for his glory, not because he's an egomaniac, but because he is the most glorious thing in all existence. Because the chief end of all of God's creation and the purpose of all of God's creation is to give glory to God. And part of the beauty and the power of this is that God's glory was being known in places that God's glory wouldn't have been known had these circumstances not existed in Joseph's life. That leads us to the third observation this morning. That God is always working for his redemptive purposes. In other words, he's always turning graves into gardens. He's always at work to bring beauty from ashes. To put back together the broken fragments of situations in your life and mine into a beautiful mosaic of redemption. People came to know this God of Joseph in a land where he wasn't known among a people where he wasn't known, in a household where he wasn't known, wasn't lifted up. And in Joseph, we see the prototype of another one to come who would be cast out, who would walk in a different culture, in a different land, who would ultimately take the walk to the cross, experiencing the wrath and the judgment of God through Roman crucifixion, for your sin and for mine, for the redemption and reclamation and restoration of all of God's creation. In Joseph, we see a mirror image. We see a shadow. We see a bit of the substance of Jesus Christ to come. Who would experience the greatest of all descents so that he could experience the glory of the greatest ascent. So that you and I, just as those in Egypt and the rest of the world were saved through God's glorious work in Joseph, the redeeming of many lives, that the same thing might happen eternally, finally, and fully through Jesus Christ himself. A couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to have a conversation with one of uh, our members at LNBC. And in just a minute, we're going to get to watch a, a, a short segment from that conversation as she shared some about her journey as one who, who works to help people find and experience the faithfulness and the goodness of God, the healing uh, that God can bring in lives while they're walking through battles with depression and anxiety and all of the other kinds of brokenness and fragmentation that we experience as human beings. But not just that. We're going to hear her briefly share a little bit about her own story of learning to walk in and trust in the goodness and the faithfulness of God in the midst of her own battles. If you would, just turn your eyes to the screens and let's watch together for the next few minutes. I'm Judy Holly, and I've been a member here at Lost Mountain for almost 30 years. I can't believe it. It's been a long time. I've been a counselor now for 13 years. I love what I do. I love the, my practice. Um, I do have a degree in Christian counseling, and um, I love that integration of theology and with psychology. I'm just really excited to finally be able to say that it's okay. It's okay for Christians to say, I need help. 
you know, I didn't set out to be a counselor. I didn't know what it was. I knew I wanted to do something in helping, in uh, ministry of some way. The first time I was ever really um, exposed to counseling was when we adopted our oldest son, who is almost 29 now. And um, so Tim and I had to go through counseling together for for that whole process through a Christian agency. And it was like marriage counseling. We thought we were going in for adoption counseling. It was the best marriage counseling we could have ever gotten. We learned so much about each other, even though we'd already been married six years. We dated six years before that. And so that's when God really put that seed in my heart about that. Um, and then when uh, my son, my second son, Matthew, was pregnant with him, my dad was terminally ill with cancer. And so um, 27 years ago, when my dad passed away, um, having my son almost at 30, I never knew what postpartum was because I we adopted our oldest son. So between that thing of my son was only six weeks old when my dad died, those two culminations, within about a few months, I dealt with some depression. I didn't know what that was. I'd never experienced it before. And that was my second time to enter into some counseling. It was so helpful to me. And again, that seed was grew even more about counseling. But it, again, God put kind of that weight in my heart about it. Um, well, then this last year, my mom passed away suddenly. And um, dealing with that, with COVID, um, both of my brothers ended up with COVID. 2020 was a bad year. Um, but also in January, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So I've had a year of um, a lot of stuff that I thought I was handling pretty well until this diagnosis came along. And God had already set things up because I figured out, you know, I think I need to see somebody and talk to somebody about my mom and losing her so suddenly. And um, so I'd already been seeing a counselor a couple of times and then I get this diagnosis. So it was, God had already set it up. I had already gotten my relationship with her. I really liked her. So when I come into the office and say, hey, we gotta do a timeout on this grief counseling right now, I've just been thrown this really big curveball. So we have now been working on that. The fear, the anxiety, the what ifs, what does that look like? Um, and I love it. I love being able to go and sit in her office and talk to her and not have to be the counselor, not be the caregiver, but to have care given to me. So that's made a huge difference for me. And I'll continue to see her with this journey. I have surgery coming up in a few weeks and um, I just saw her yesterday and we talked and we processed some things that's coming up. And so counseling is not just for anybody saying, I'm weak, I'm weak. No, it's for anyone that is walking through something that needs somebody to help you process that information. So it doesn't matter who you are. Um, it's there for you to help you to get through this. Part of what God wants us to understand, part of what he wants you to understand and take away when uh, we look at, at Joseph's story and his day and his place and we hear just a small piece of Judy's story in our day and in our place is that he never, ever, ever, ever leaves his people. He is good and he is faithful. And you may not understand what you're walking through in the moment. We've talked a lot about how depression and anxiety warp our view of reality in the moment. 
but you learn to trust him. Just as Judy's learning to look back and see that God's already been at work. God's got this. God's holding her. And if you need help, if you know that you've been trying to battle this on your own, don't do it anymore. Don't do it anymore. Post-Easter, uh, once we get through Easter, we'll roll out some more segments from our time with Judy. Send out to you guys via email. They'll be on our website along with uh, a good amount of other resources um, both locally and in terms of books and websites that uh, provide helps for mental health issues, for depression and anxiety. Let's stand this morning. I want to pray over us and then we'll move into a time of response through worship. And I hope that whatever you're, whatever you're struggling with this morning, that you could just release that to God and feel God's delight and pleasure in you this morning through Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you that when we come before you, Lord, we don't have to hide. God, we don't have to pretend. Father, we don't have to act like we've got everything together, like we're never afraid. God, and we don't have to fear you. Lord, in and through Jesus Christ, your word says that you have redeemed us you've delivered us you've set us free from the bondage of sin and ultimately from death God your word says that we are your treasured possession so father as we respond to you in worship this morning God I pray that we would sing with hearts made glad God that our spirits would be lifted father whatever burden and weight we carry this morning we would simply release to you, knowing that we are invited by you to cast all our cares on you because you care for us. Father, do your work in this place. Do your work in our lives. I ask it confidently and expectantly in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.